Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from Arc Studio. If you're a screenwriter, I really can't recommend this screenwriting software enough. When I sit down to write, I want to stay focused on my story. Arc Studio's minimalist and dare I say beautiful interface allows me to do just that. It has seamless real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, meaning that if you like to collaborate with other writers as I do, Arc Studio has all the tools to keep you and whoever you're working with, both literally and figuratively, on the same page. Importing and exporting other formats such as PDFs or final draft files is easy. And best of all, Arc Studio has an always free plan, so you can sign up today and start writing. If you spring for a pro plan, you'll be able to download Arc Studio's desktop and mobile app. You'll also get access to pro features like outlining and real-time collaboration. Head to arcstudiopro.com to take your screenwriting software to the next level. Check the link in today's episode's show notes to find out more and get writing. This script is very much about letting go and recognizing that you you can't hold on to those those parts of life that need to be let go of, that you will you will hurt them and crush them, and some of that you will hurt yourself, and some you will hurt those that you love. The script did end up marking the end of a relationship for me that had been my one lifelong relationship. And it was, you know, that's on the page. It's on the page. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. In our latest award season miniseries special, we're chatting today with Darius Marder, director and co-writer of the astounding Sound of Metal. Nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay, the film's an intimate look inside the life of a punk drummer with a history of substance abuse whose world is thrown into disarray when he suffers from hearing loss. Desperate to avoid relapsing into drug dependency again, our protagonist Ruben joins a community of deaf-recovered addicts on a remote farm where he begins on a path towards relearning who he is and reconstructing his life. Riz Ahmed is sensational as the wiry, introverted Ruben, working from a script that treats its characters not as conduits to tell a story, but living, breathing people. Achieving that depth on the page required an intense amount of work for Darius and his brother slash co-writer Abraham. On top of the countless hours they spent writing out hundreds of pages of backstory for their characters, the pair put a massive amount of emotional labour into Sound of Metal 2 to make their story as grounded as possible. As you'll hear in this episode, Darius drew on his own experience of a crumbling relationship while writing scenes between Ruben and his partner Lou. Abraham meanwhile let his own history of medical problems inform the feeling of freefall that Ruben finds himself in as his hearing begins to falter. I caught up with Darius to hear about the punishing but ultimately cathartic process of writing this film. We also get into the many meanings of the movie's title and why it was so important to him not to present deafness as a problem to be fixed. Darius also shared with me why Sound of Metal was originally envisioned as not one movie, but two, with another film delving into what happens to Lou intended to be released simultaneously. This is a spoiler-filled conversation if you hadn't already guessed, so if you're yet to see Sound of Metal, you know the drill by now. Hit pause, head to Amazon Prime Video to watch it, then come back as we dive into every detail of this great movie. Thanks for tuning in, you're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, Produced by Camille Demek.
Darius, great to meet you. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. It's nice to meet you as well. Congratulations, of course, on this incredible film and all the well-deserved awards nominations that have been coming your way. Uh, there's been such a loving response to this film. Have you had enough distance yet from writing and directing Sound of Metal to get a sense of what you think it is that's connected with people about this story and these characters? Yeah, you know, I think so. I think that, um, first of all, it's just a nice way to describe it as a loving response. And I think that's really um, important because it's such a it's such a kind of a viscerally human movie. There's no bad guy in this film. There's no, it's not entertainment necessarily in the normal sense. It's more of an experience you go through. And so for people to feel that sort of loving connection to it, as, uh, is is really interesting and wonderful to me because I think the I think this pandemic has tested everybody in a way that's that we never could have imagined. We never could have imagined this this global health crisis that we are all sharing that has forced us into a kind of selfdom that is almost in many ways I think is the greatest test for us as social creatures you know we're all social creatures that's the way we are and and in some societies it's it's you know well almost in most when you do something wrong you are you are punished by being put by yourself you know that's mm -hmm. a punishment and there's a punishment for a reason I certainly know in many tribes they would put people away from the group and it was almost unbearable. So everybody's had to deal with that and, and really question who we are when you remove the trappings of all of that and the aspects of our identity, who are we? And that was always the, the core question in this film. You know, you peel away the layers, what's left? You know, all of the things that we think define us, when you take them, when you remove them, what's left? And who am I? And is it good enough? And am I good enough? And I think everybody's going through that. So yeah, remarkably, I think for some who feel the film and not everyone, but for some who feel the film and the energy of the film, they're feeling the lifeline of that shared universal experience that we, and, and, and that the film has felt like something that's speaking to them. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. It's a story about an unforeseen circumstance ripping someone away from their former life. And to an extent, that is something we've all experienced as a result of the pandemic. To a great extent. And mm. and it's never in fact happened in this way uh, that anyone can remember. Even a war doesn't do that. You know, a war does it in a different way. But but we, we sh you know, when you think of like brothers in arms, you think of shared experience, even through trauma. This is unique. This, this, this pandemic's unique because it's put us by ourselves. Mm. One word that's come up a lot in, in my conversations about the film and in things I've read about the film has been this word authenticity. There's such mm. a commitment within the movie to giving an authentic representation of what it's like to be a member of the deaf community, the cultural experience of that, the sensory experience of that. Why was that important to you and Abraham as you wrote Sound of Metal? Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really central to everything I I care about as a filmmaker. If there to to usher life into a script and onto a screen is such a fascinating and complicated process because it begins. You're you're exactly right that it begins in the writing, and it was always important to Abraham, always important to me. I think that 
that constructs ideas, um, you know, structure, plot points, all of these things are low hanging fruit. They're, they're, you know, our ideas, our nifty, interesting concepts, they're low hanging fruit. What's, what's tough to find and access are those things that are, that run deeper than that. Those things that are really at the heart of what makes us, us. Um, and so the writing process was about that, was about bringing a sense of kind of undeniable life into these characters. And for my brother and I, that meant writing ridiculous amounts of pages, 1,500, 2,000 pages of wow. exploration into character. We knew Ruben inside and out. We, we had written, and Lou, we had written all of Lou's poems. You know, we had, we had taken, writ, wrote Lou's entire journey to Europe. Um, it, to know a character thoroughly, it's it's really interesting because there's very little about Ruben, Ruben's past that hits the screen. And yet Riz and new Ruben's past, uh, Riz, that foundation, this is actually something that I explored as an actor years ago. You know, there's a magical, almost ineffable thing that occurs when you, as an actor, where you might be approaching a scene and it's just not hitting. And you know it's not hitting because the audience doesn't remember it. You know, when you when you when you engage in acting, there's this really interesting process you go under. And then as you fill it with truth, and sometimes that means doing things like understanding what's in your pocket. Like what's what what wallet are you carrying? You know, are you are you entering that scene as an actor as partially as Darius, or are you really entering into the depth of who that character is? And for me, in those years way back, that meant like getting on a subway with all of these bags of stuff that were part of my character. So I had kind of gone through that as an actor, and I very much think the same. And then once you fill that character, sometimes literally the pockets, your own pockets, shockingly, the audience starts to hear the lines. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that? Why is, how is it that you can pretend to say a line over here? And then once you feel the truth of that, it's not spoken, but the audience hears it. So that's this kind of true North for me as a writer. Um, anyone can write a line, but what happens when you understand the line? What happens when you grasp it? What happens when it comes from that piece of you that where it hurts? you know, where it, where it really hurts or where you really feel it. And what does it mean to, uh, to get to that point where you feel it and it hurts? And what is that exploration? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's, it's, uh, it's not linear. It's tricky. And it just involves being honest with yourself. And in this case, with my brother and my brother with me, it, it, we needed to kind of wrestle and, and, and be our, be our truth keepers for each other. And, Yes, it starts in the writing. And then for Riz, it was about process, you know, and filling that character with just undeniable truth that well that started a year before we shot, you know. What were those pieces of hurt that you located and, and, and plunged into this script? Because, I mean, as well as uh, the, the other uh, authenticity that we mentioned a moment ago, there's, there's a real emotional authenticity as well. Ruben and Lou feel so real, so human. Um, and I know that... Um, you know, you both brought a part of your own experiences to the table as you wrote this story. Can you tell me a bit about what from each of your lives you 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 put into this story? Yeah, I can. You know, Abraham, first of all, was, you know, 
he had undergone a physical trauma himself. He's a musician and a songwriter. Uh, he's just an outrageous talent, uh, incredibly sensitive writer, and always my creative confidant for going back many, many years. We've always lived within blocks of each other. So um, he, he had undergone a physical trauma. He had lost 50 pounds. Uh, he was not big to begin with. And he could barely lift his guitar, let alone play a gig. Um, so I had asked him to come and write with me. I had already been writing the script for a while. I had I, I wasn't there yet, and um, I and he knew that, and he knew the script well because we talked about it all the time. But I asked him to come upstate with me, and uh, and write, and that's when our writing process started. And it, I don't think we really knew in that moment that it was a lifeline for Abraham. And that Abraham, on many levels, was going through what Ruben's going through in the story, having to divorce himself from his own identity and deal with a major physical life, life crushing reality. Um, so this this script ended up being that lifeline. And interestingly, as we wrote over those years, we wrote Abraham gained strength, um, and you know we were um, it was literally a lifeline. And he he really poured a lot of the nuance and the heartbreak and the and the very real kind of cellular detail of Ruben into that and from his own experience. And he's an audiophile. There's so much crossover there. And he really geeked out on sound and sound design. And 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 we just had a wonderful time exploring Ruben because it was coming from such a real place. And there's a lot of Ruben in me as well. And um, and we love Ruben, like we just love Ruben. And it's, it's it's not good to say there's a lot of me and Ruben, and then say I love Ruben. That's that's not good. that that sounds <laughs> remarkably narcissistic. But um, but you have to love your characters, you know. And we, God, we love Ruben. We our heart broke for him every day. You know, I, we would we would um I, we would I would write something, and my brother would look at me and go, Oh, you sick fuck. <laughs> you know, um, you can't do that to Ruben. Uh, but for me, you know, this script, this was like a bit like a Dickensian ghost kind of whispering to me. And I, I what this script is very much about letting go and recognizing that you, you can't hold on to those, those parts of life that need to be let go of that you will, you will hurt them and crush them. And some of that you will hurt yourself and some you will hurt those that you love, you know, and I, you know, the script did end up marking the end of a relationship for me that had been my one lifelong relationship and, you know, with my kids and everything. And, and it was, you know, that's on the page, it's on the page. And, and it took a long time and a lot of courage to get me to write that and a lot of pain. And, and um, so it truly is alive, this script and every, every single frame of it is, it was just pulled from us and something real. And it just, it's just very interesting how long it takes to get to that place of sincerity. Mm, yeah, that sense of letting go. It took me a couple of rewatches to sort of be able to articulate that that was the thing that I found so, uh, you know, relatable about this story. It's a very specific story about a situation that, you know, thank God I, I have not experienced myself, but there's something so, uh, so universal about the process that Ruben has to undergo. And you have experienced it. Mm. That's, that's the thing. We, it is universal. It truly is. We all, we, you know, yes, the, the going deaf is not universal, uh, experiencing that, but, but the story is much more about addiction than it is about the physicality of going deaf. You know, it's what going deaf unearths. It's the, it's the, it's what 
it unearths in this character. And we all experience that in different ways throughout our lives. And, and we all run from it and avoid it at all costs because it's that difficult. It, it like when we, when we have to question those aspects of our identity that keep us comfortable in life, you know, those are the hardest, those are the hardest moments. So we, we, most of us just want to stay in that place of, no, this is me. This is me. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the title itself is a real shapeshifter of a title with all these different meanings and applications to the story. Um, it's the symbols on his drum kit that likely caused Ruben's hearing to deteriorate. It's the genre of music that Ruben's entire life revolves around. It's the implant that Ruben spends most of the movie driving towards getting. And of course, it's the it's a sound of metal that helps unlock a new side of the character in that really tender moment banging on the slide to communicate with the deaf child. Um, when did you discover that title? When did you realize that this was the name for your film? It took a while. It took a while. Um, it, it, it probably, it, the, the title revealed itself as the film revealed itself, you know, as it needed to, you know, you wouldn't have understood this title had, you know, in the beginning because that film needed to reveal itself over time. And you're, and it's wonderful to hear you point out those aspects of the title. And that's absolutely true. It's also, it's also the last sound that Ruben hears in the movie is the sound of metal from the church bells. You know, the, 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 the entire kind of symmetry of that title started to present itself to my brother and I um, really, as we started to sink into the, to the absolute kind of essence of the script and um and at first it, we, you know, at first it had a the on it. It wasn't just sound of metal. And then it started, we started to understand that it reflected the acts of the movie, that, that the first act of the movie was sound um, and the world of sound and what binds one to another. That's what the definition of the literal definition of sound is the vibrations that are bind one thing to another. And, and, then, and then the middle act became of, and the of the definition of of is to belong to, to be part of, cool. and that's that's the deaf community. And then that third act and third and tragic and surprising act is metal, and just like you said, it's it's that metal that ends up in Ruben's head. It's the, it's the metal that he's trying to get back to the whole movie. It's that thing that you're, you know, that that kind of illustrious uh, red herring, and. Um, and you know, so that that kind of incredible sense of structure was really was really uh, intoxicating for us. Mm. And of course, the use of metal as a genre of music for Ruben to play is so perfect in the film. Obviously, there's like a narrative reason for that to be the style of music he he plays. It's so loud that um, of course it it can affect your hearing. But on top of that, I mean. I'm 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 I've been a music journalist, so I've seen up front how metal is such a brilliantly tribal genre for yeah. people who love metal. It's a lifestyle. It's an identity. So yeah. detaching Ruben from that life strikes me as a way more pronounced challenge for that character than if he played hip hop or if he played jazz. Um, and I mean, even as he joins Joe's community in the movie, all Ruben's clothes are metal band T-shirts. His his fashion is completely informed by this this community that he's abruptly ripped away from. Uh, can you tell me what you found so thematically rich about making this character a metal drummer? 
Yeah, well, it's everything you say. The tribe is incredibly important. That sense of identity is so deep. And, you know, for Ruben as a character who's never had a tribe, he didn't have a family. You know, he went through foster homes. He dealt with abuse. He never had it. So this is it. This is the tribe. This is everything. This is the, you know, he has a, you know, even the Airstream uh, we thought about as a, like almost like a womb-like shape, like this this place where you are safely within, but everything about it relates to, to, to that identity, everything about it. It's obviously made of metal. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's wired. He's wired the whole thing. We even built on a production level it as Ruben would have built it. We had rules for ourselves. What tools would Ruben have? Well, he only had a skill saw, you know, a screwdriver and, and that was pretty much it, you know, like a, a drill. So everything was built that way on the inside. And the point being that he built his life around this tribe entirely. And it was noise, it was punk, it was industrial, it was metal, but that, but that was his tribe. And, and you're, and you're exactly right. You know, you wear it, he wears it on his skin in the form of his tattoos. He wears it you know, um, in his clothing. And then that wearing it becomes, you know, there are certain details that I even, I don't think I've even mentioned in an interview, like the, the way that that identity um, uh, serves to show us uh, codependence because, you know, Lou also wears it. She's a cutter. She wears her scars and, and she, she, she wears it in her eyebrows, just as Ruben wears it on his head in the form of that, that kind of disappearance, that bleachedness. But also, um, you know, if you, you know, the day that they go and visit uh, Joe for the first time, if you ever rewatch the movie, you'll notice that Lou's wearing this one particular shirt, this jockey shirt. And then, and then uh, the day that, that she leaves, Ruben shows back up at Joe's wearing the shirt she was wearing. So that, that, that sense of inter, that sense of them being, yeah, that's the thing I haven't mentioned yet and no one's mentioned, but that that's part of their codependent, you know, relationship that he went back to that, to that place. And he found that piece of her that was the same as him and that interchangeability and that where do you end and I begin thing is very important, you know? Hey there, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you that this episode of Script Apart is also sponsored by Coverfly. If you're a screenwriter who's still getting your work out there, you'll love Coverfly because they curate the best screenwriting talent discovery programs all in one place. On Coverfly, you can submit your script to writing fellowships, labs, competitions, and festivals, and track the status for your submission using your very own Coverfly writer dashboard. To date, hundreds of screenwriters have met their manager or agent through Coverfly, these writers have gone on to write for massive Hollywood companies like Universal, Netflix, CBS, Amazon, and Blumhouse. Coverfly is helping make the entertainment industry a more accessible place using its data-driven talent discovery platform. If you're an emerging screenwriter with a finished script, be sure to check out Coverfly.com today. Check the link in this episode's show notes to learn more. Okay, back to the conversation. The opening scene is so powerful and you really get a a, a sense of the physicality and the euphoria of performing and, and why Ruben might be so addicted to this lifestyle. Yeah. Um, how did you go about constructing that scene and, and what did it need to accomplish? Oh God, the amount of work that went into that scene is, is, is just absurd. Um, well, first of all, my brother, who's a musician began working on that piece 
going back years before we shot years. And he did such an incredible amount of work. He, he worked with this guy, Harry Cantwell from Boston age, this band, Boston age, Harry's an incredible metal drummer. And, um, they worked together and they created a piece that was unplayable, but wonderful. It was unplayable in the sense it's like, Harry's such a, an incredible drummer. It was just, we really wanted to push the boundaries of what's doable. And the, their first passes of it were not doable. You know, it would have taken Riz a long time to even be able to approximate it. So then it was about uh, focusing that piece, continually focusing it. So it was, we were really focused on it actually being tribal so that there is this sense, because you were exactly right about about the the music and the genre and the family itself is a tribe. And you see that at the merch table when they're like, you know, chilling with, with surfboard, that other band. And you sense, you get the sense of these people, these live almost this gypsy lives together, but they cross and they become each other's tribe. But the music itself is tribal. The drumming wants to make, it, it should feel tribal in the beginning. It's simple in the beginning. And it has that like really tribal, uh, timeless sense of percussiveness that you might have found in literally in tribes, you know, a thousand years ago. And then it gives way to this metal, the double bass and the, and this, in, we wanted it to be intensely um, aerobic, mm. like, like impossible to play. And that piece is even for, <laughs> even for a, it's, it's impossible to play. Like, you know, some of that alternating uh, um, hi hats and crash you, that the thing that's, that's, that, that someone who isn't a drummer won't know is how hard that is to play because a, a, a novice will tense up when they do that. And when you tense up, you can't do it and you have to learn to, to relax. And, you know, so it's like this Zen like process that we knew. And, and I really wanted Riz to have to go through because I knew, I know process. And as a musician myself, I know what it takes. You can't think your way through it. You can't force your way through it. You have to, you have to put the time in and work toward your body being able to relax. You know, it was refining it, getting into that tribal sense and then bringing in other musicians. Um, uh, Margaret uh, Chartier, who is a one woman noise machine uh, called Pharmacon. She's this sensation in Brooklyn, brought her on board and brought Sean Powell on board from Surfboard to help us at times. And then between everyone, and then and then Guy Licata, who ended up being um, Riz's drum teacher, we formed this whole constellation around that piece and kept refining it to the point of like it's playable, but it's fucking impossible. You know, <laughs> like how is this just just impossible enough that Riz is going to have to stretch beyond anything he could imagine to get there? And, and to Riz's credit he insisted on doing the double bass. Like, you know, <laughs> at times people were like, dude, just, just, you know, don't do the double. And he insisted on it. So he's doing the whole thing, you know, which is madness. And, um, and then, and then, you know, Margaret Chartier from Pharmacon was training Olivia, had a scream. She's Olivia, by the way, is also simultaneously playing guitar and looping synth on the wow. floor, you know, because I didn't want to shoot it like cutaways, like, isn't this cool? You know, I don't have like shots of her feet, but she's doing it in real time. All that sound is coming out of her. So it's pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. The next couple of pages, uh, you know, really let you see inside Lou and Ruben's relationship. There's some really nice warm glimpses inside their love for each other, including a fun exchange about how Ruben looks like Jeff Goldblum might be his dad. Um, let's talk about Lou for a second. 
Am I right in thinking that you guys at various points in the development process went, were diving pretty deep into Lou's backstory, who she is, who her mother was, and so on? Um, yeah. you, you know, was, was that actually something that um, was in the script at any point? And was there a version of this film that was a bit more even-handed between the two characters? Or was that all just part of that process of you sketch out everything about who this character is and then use what you need to inform the character? Both. I mean, it, there is stuff in the script. You know, the dress that that Lou is wearing while she plays is representative of the dress her mother died in and committed suicide wearing. You know, there's very in, incredibly she Lou is is acting out a certain sort of um, you know exorcism of sorts. You know, on stage and and so you know, there's we, there's all of the specificity of Lou. Some of it's really there and was there on the script that you see later in the script. Um, but we had, as I said, written all of this. And as a matter of fact, Lou was so important to me and my brother that we ended up probably writing more pages on Lou than Ruben. Wow. Uh, which is which people would be very surprised to hear. And and for the longest time, uh, I was cross-cutting between the two and, 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 you know, and this was way back in the beginning and then ultimately needed to commit to this being an utterly first person perspective for, for obvious reasons, but they're not obvious when you begin, you know, you have to kind of turn over stones to find that. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes sad for me to think that people think that Lou is incidental or like a secondary character. Cause she's not, <laughs> she's not at all. She's not for us. And, you know, she, everything about her is um, important, so much so that had I had the bandwidth, I would have sh simultaneously shot her movie. And and in other words, this was something I really considered doing, which was, um, you know, releasing Sound of Metal and then showing the moment from when they separate in a taxi all the way to when Ruben knocks on the door uh, later um, as her movie because I know the movie and it's good. Um, and her journey is, is just as important, um, actually. So yeah, she's, she's really well fleshed out. And, um, but I also will say that, you know, like I said, you know, her mother dying on, on the stage every night is also highly sensual. And yet Lou offstage isn't, she's almost androgynous, you know? And so her coming into her own sense of self and her own sense of sensuality is all there on the screen. It's all there for anyone who wants to watch it. It's not just that she looks different in the end. It's that she's, you know, she's, she's more feminine in the end. She's come closer to herself self as a woman and, you know, the eyebrows were always about disappearing. We're always about not being noticed. You know, Lou is someone who doesn't want to get catcalled. Lou is someone who doesn't want, you know, to be noticed. And the only time she's noticed is that when she's that powerful being on stage, but that's also intermixed with her mother, you know? So there's a lot of very specific psychological stuff going on that she needs to deal with in order to, to the only way that she could possibly ever deal with it is the same as Ruben. She has to go to the one place on earth she most doesn't want to go, and that's home. You know, I see some people write like, oh, she has a rich dad. She's gonna... It's not like that at all. I mean, she, she that's the last place on earth she wants to go is home. And she's proven that by not having gone back since she was nine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, that's all there. I also love in film how you can have massive contexts that you feel that you feel without 
without needing to be explained, you know? And I, and I think it's to your earlier point about authenticity. What is it? How do we feel the depth of a character? Well, you don't feel it if it isn't there. I'll tell you that much. It doesn't yeah. magically get felt. Is, I mean, you mentioned the, the sort of temptation to tell Lou's story and to make another film telling her perspective. I mean, presumably that is an option for you now that Sound of Metal has proved as successful as it is. Do you think that might happen? Is that something you want to explore? Well, I don't know. I, I really wanted to explore it simultaneously, um, but it, you're right. It's not an impossibility and it's a, and it's a damn cool thing. I, it had a whole construct, which is to say it would have involved me shooting a couple of things while I was shooting Sound of Metal because they would cross over, right. you know, um, and, and, and this shoot was such a high wire act that at one point, even though I was really considering it, and even with my DP was considering it, we were going to steal it. We were going to steal the shots, even though they weren't on the schedule. But it was such <laughs> a it was such a high wire act that I knew I needed to just make sure I got this in the can. And you know, we're shooting on thirty five millimeter. I mean, I can't tell you how hard this film was to get to 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 lot. You know, to get there with this movie was a lot. I mean, this was a very ambitious film at our budget. And you know, way beyond what anyone thought we could deliver, and um, so I I had to make the choice to commit fully to making sure I got sound and metal right, and not let my crazy ass brain pull me to somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have this sort of quite pivotal scene where Ruben's hearing abruptly drops out. We have these scenes in um, like the audiologist office where he's kind of trying to scramble around for information and, and for a quick fix. It's then in this diner sequence that you reveal that Ruben is a former addict. And this is such an important source of tension and stakes in the movie. The knowledge that Ruben once spiraled into substance abuse means uh, to watch it, you're terrified that this setback is going to be the thing that tips him over into, back into those self-destructive habits. Uh, when did you realize in the creative process that addiction was going to be a component of this story? Took a little while. It was always there as a seed. I always understood it about Ruben and that character. Took a while to understand that it was the linchpin of the story. And, um, and it, it wasn't even to understand. Yeah, it was to understand that it and how, because there's something really unusual about this, which is that you think that the plot is about him being deaf, but it's not. There's a handoff that happens and right there in the diner. That diner scene was the hardest scene to write because you have to show it, but not tell it. And you know, you never say addiction in that scene. How do you understand there's an addict in that scene? That was a that was an impossible scene to write, an impossible scene and hard to edit too. Because first of all, it was just a very long scene initially. Um, and, and, you know, imagine how do we as an audience feel that thing arrive that we don't see coming? It was so exciting to me as a filmmaker, I have to say, like, so exciting to think that we could have this thing take place in a diner of all places where we recognize something's happening that we didn't see coming that has nothing to do with deafness. I was just like, because that whole construct is the only way to fully grasp. If you don't have the two things at play, then you can't really understand how we as an audience get indoctrinated into the fix, just like Ruben does, right? We as a hearing audience get indoctrinated, I should say, it, which was really important to me. There's this meta thing that happens in this movie, I think with a lot of hearing audiences where 
where we go, this is what the movie's about. Oh yeah, he's with the audiologist. Yes, yeah, so we can get an implant, get an implant, get an implant, you know? And we have to kind of shed those layers as well and start to recognize, and that's the way we understand, you know, that deaf culture is a culture. Mm-hmm. It's because we have those trappings. So you have to see the addict arrive through his behavior. You have to see it arrive through the through the seemingly innocuous smoking of a cigarette outside. You the, a sponsor. You're talking to a sponsor, but do you never do you ever say the word sponsor? How do we know it? How do we feel it? That's again that authenticity, that sense of trusting an audience, which is tough to do. Easier said than done. Trust an audience to get it. Trust the performance to show it, not tell it. Trust in Lou. So remember that Lou isn't scared in that scene because Ruben can't hear, you know? She's scared in that scene because of what she sees happening and what the implication is are for Ruben and for her. Um, so, because they're both keeping each other alive at that moment, you know, they're both, they're each other's ballasts. So yeah, that's an incredibly exciting scene to me, that diner scene and the way that it, everything hinges on that one scene in the movie is, is just a, for me, me and my brother, it was just like, man, we always loved that scene, but boy, did it kick our ass. Ruben gets what he wants, technically, selling all his equipment and his, and his van to pay for this implant that partially retrieves his hearing. But true to Joe's warning near the beginning of the movie, that's not the part of him in true need of healing. How did you decide on that story arc for Ruben? And why is it important to tell a story in which deafness wasn't something to be fixed? Well, you know, there's a very pukey, well-worn path of disability movies, you know, that, that we had, I, I have no interest in, in telling or making, you know, and so that's the interesting, you know, this kind of what we might call inspiration porn or, you know, I just have no interest in it. Number one, I, I think deafness is really unique in the sense that it truly is a culture, you know, deafness with a capital D is a culture. And that's really exciting to me to be able to visit that culture as a filmmaker, you know, uh, In the Land of the Deaf is such a wonderful film and certain films have really um, inspired me. My grandmother went deaf and straddled these two worlds. The film's dedicated to her. There's a lot kind of drawing me to that, but I never, I I didn't want to represent this culture. I wanted the culture to represent itself. So I wanted to create a framework wherein that could happen. And that wasn't an easy sell, (laughs) you know, wasn't an easy sell. Uh, it, it, and it was, but it was so exciting to me because I knew that, you know, my, my background is in documentary and I, and I wanted to be able to watch and understand and learn and, and have, you know, and, and, and really create this cross-cultural experience in the film. And also what, when we watched the film, that it would be open captioned and that audiences could come from hearing and deaf and hard of hearing audiences could all share in this experience to watch one singular movie, but see it in a different way. That felt so alive to me, you know, and, and yet fraught and, and challenging. Uh, so entering into that construct um, with the MacGuffin of this fix. Now I don't have anything against cochlear implants. The film doesn't have an opinion about cochlear in- implants. They're a miracle. They work for some people. They're also challenging. You know, that's fine. It's 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 serving as a symbol. Um, but to have this MacGuffin so that we could 
really understand this. The film is an able-bodied perspective. Ruben is a hearing person at, you know, at his core. And he maintains that construct, that, that cerebral construct throughout. It isn't until the end that he, in those final moments, you know, does some accepting. Uh, it is not until the final couple moments that he maybe isn't an addict for the first time, or that he's that he's sitting. But you know, that's what's exciting to me about the movie, not about disability. I I even have a hard time with the word because it's truly a different ability. You know, it really is. In fact, this isn't political correctness. This is truth, and anyone who's spent time within the deaf community knows this. This is a different ability. Deaf people have that different ability. They they are present in a way that hearing people are not. They are physical and emotional in a way that we are not. And it's a different, it's a culture. So it, yeah, it was really exciting to me. And were there any different iterations of that ending, both in terms of the fate of Lou and Ruben as a couple and, you know, that, that beautiful ending moment where Ruben's finally able to sit in silence, like observing another sound of metal, that bell that he can't listen to. The ending was elusive for a while and there were other endings, uh, in very, in vastly different scripts. Um, and they weren't right. And, uh, we started over, um, the the that ending was elusive and i would say the most painful thing in the world for me to write i that was that piece that was like i said in the beginning you know when you're tearing apart your own heart to find the whole point of why you're writing this that was it and that that act of letting go that leaving that warm bed that sense of connection that walking into the cold world that that's what it needed to be. And it just took a long time for me to understand that. It took a long, it took a very crazy circuitous journey for me to understand. But once I did, writing the end of that movie was, I had, I had to take a five or six month break to write another movie, which I, I said no to initially, even though I wasn't getting paid to write Sound of Metal. I, I, I said no to it because I was so obsessed with Sound of Metal. But then I wrote this other film, this epic film, and I just put myself to it. And when I was done, I had this incredible experience where I wrote, I went back to Sound of Metal and it just wrote itself. It was that total flow state, but very painful because it was it was that thing that I needed to write and 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 on a on a level with a level of authenticity. I mean, there was nothing more authentic than the emotion of writing the end of that movie for me. That was that was that tore me apart, but I knew it was right. And, and then the nuance of it, um, the bells, et cetera, that was all there. It was almost like it's a strange process in writing how you've set up the foundation for it. It was just like, it was so, that was, that, was, that was a flow state of writing that you look for and want, and it's so intoxicating. And if you ever get it again, you're lucky, you know, writing the end. <laughs> Well, it's such a special film, Darius. Um, just finally, you've touched on uh, your next project. Um, what can you tell me about what's coming up? I mean, now people have discovered your work if they weren't already plugged into you as a filmmaker. What do they have to look forward to? Well, hopefully not another 10 years. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the first thing. Now, I've been writing throughout this pandemic, which has been, you know, it's a, it, I'm so grateful for the process of writing because it aloneness without it would be tough. Um, and, uh, 
And I'm really interested. I'm, I have two projects. One project that I've been writing for longer than Sound of Metal, but it was always too big of a movie to make first. And, and I'm very much in love with this film and very excited to make it. I'm very interested in pushing the boundaries of visceral uh, films that are dealing in a language that isn't, that's challenging, but also, but also, you know, cathartic. And so I'm, and, and I'm simultaneously working on that. I'm also writing this other film, which I'll probably make next, which is, um, uh, I can't quite talk about it yet. I've been told, but I'm, but it's, I'm also dealing in this uh, first person language, which is really interesting to me. Uh, again, pushing some boundaries in a way that push me or pushing me a lot. And, and, and that's where I want to be, you know, really, really kind of stretching myself into and, and, and stretching at least American film in a certain way that I really want to push it. You know, I, I, I really think that we've grown very sophisticated in our language, but I also think that we've grown very lazy. You know, we're used to, used to, to things kind of, always pulling us in, pulling us in, pulling us in. And I'm interested in a very different kind of film. I'm interested in the kind of film that makes you sit up and watch rather than, you know, Morgan Freeman talking about the penguins, you know? <laughs> um, so, so I, I'm pushing the boundaries of it for me and, um, you know, it's a scary place to be and that's just where I want to be. That's an awesome place to leave it. Darius, congratulations again on all, all the success. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us on Script Apart. Hey, thanks so much. Great questions. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. Thanks again, Darius. Really appreciate it. Take care. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kemal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us to scriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 